Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 23 of We Effed Up. I'm Teresa. I'm Cody. And once again, we're here to tell you, our faithful, loyal listeners, uh, about a situation in history where we effed up. Somehow, we have screwed the pooch, so to speak, and history will never be the same. What are we talking about today, Cody? Firstly, I like how you use listeners, plural. That's very optimistic. Um, <laughs> we do have more than one listener. Yay! Well, two is more than one. So. Yep, that's right. Um, that's how you got to think about it. Yeah. Uh, we're continuing our little sub-series here in, in uh, Ireland of the many, many times the English have effed around in the island to the left. <laughs> Very, uh, very astute, Cody. Uh, you're a wor- you're a wordsmith there. Yeah, Good job. Yeah. I- I'm known for my speak skills. Speak. My Good. talk skills. Good talkings. Yes, I good talk. Yes. So yes, uh, kind of a, as a sequel to our previous episode on Ireland with Oliver Cromwell, mm-hmm. the king, not king. Uh, we're fast forwarding a little bit past that. Because uh, that was in the uh, 1650s. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're fast-forwarding a little bit to the late 18th century. Okay. Uh, the turn of the century, when it shifted into the 19th century. We're talking about uh, the union, the official political union between the UK and Ireland. When Ireland actually became fully a part of the United Kingdom. Okay. So remember, up to this point, Ireland had technically been a separate country but it was essentially ruled by england kind of was like a puppet state or a client state type of situation right without their consent yeah okay so um following a rebellion in 1691 so a little bit after our previous ireland episode Mm -hmm. there's another rebellion in 1691 i'll go i won't go into that because it's rebellion against the british yeah okay uh irish rights were surveillance take two (laughs) Irish rights were severely curtailed through what were called the penal laws. Penal. Penal. (laughs) Uh, Catholics could not vote or hold office. Wow. They could not have their children educated abroad. (laughs) Okay. They had to completely divide their inheritance between their children. Okay. Because if you just leave everything to one person, to one child... Eventually, you could build up like kind of like a larger, yeah, uh, yeah, base of wealth and support. So, like, if you divide it up equally, it's just going to be like dispersed. You know, similar to our episode on Louis the Pious. Okay, remember where he uh, divvied up his kingdom and it kind of just right it fell apart. Yeah, Yeah. so disintegrated. Yeah, Catholics were also financially incentivized to convert to Anglicanism. This is crazy. Yes. It's so strange because most of the time when you hear about Catholicism, you hear about Roman Catholics, Mm. which Roman Catholics were treated very, very differently and were often in power through Europe. But Irish Catholics... Well, depending on where you... I mean, Irish Catholics, I mean, they are in communion with the Roman Catholic Church. Like, it is the same church. No, no. I'm aware. But the way that Irish Catholics were treated... Yeah. Versus the way that Roman Catholics were treated and the power that Roman Catholics had over Europe versus the... that that depends on where you are. Okay. I mean, some countries have strong Catholic identities and some don't. Especially, like, in Northern Europe. 
Yeah, I'm I'm speaking about specifically Roman Catholics in Italy. Oh, okay, okay. Like I thought you meant is, like Roman Catholics everywhere else. No, no, no. The the power that Roman Catholics in Italy enjoyed in Europe and the the prosperity that they had throughout I mean, during this time even I think, right? Like, were Roman Catholics largely in power at this time? Well, and it, well again, depends on the country. Like in Italy, specifically? In, 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 the Italian, in the various Italian states, yeah, Catholics were the ones in charge. Catholics were also in charge in Spain and Portugal, uh, France. It's just interesting to me Austria. that the, the way that we perceive Catholicism is one of, like, power and prosperity yeah. versus the way that... Irish Catholics were treated in this way with these penal laws. Yeah, where they're like a subjugated minority. Right, Or a exactly. subjugated majority, rather. Which is part of the reason why Irish people came en masse to the United States to colonize as well, because they wanted to be able to, you know, practice their religion, similar to the Puritans. But later they came yeah. because they were being persecuted as Catholics. Yeah, uh, well, that's one reason, and then we'll get into that into our next Ireland episode. Oh, okay. Yeah, um... But another another one of these penal laws, Catholic clergy were also banned from the island. Yeah. So. Um, That's great. They're like, okay, you can be Catholic, but you can't have any... Yeah, no bishops. No religious figures. You yeah. can't send your kids anywhere else to be educated. You have to divide up all of your wealth, so you cannot accumulate generational wealth. Yeah. Yeah. And also, we're, we'll give you money if you renounce your Catholicism. Yeah. <laughs> That's crazy. There was a small Presbyterian minority in the north. Mm -hmm. uh, they were also restricted, but much less severely. They tended to be de uh, descended from Scottish families who had immigrated to Ireland. Mm, okay. Because uh, the Church of Scotland at this time was Presbyterian. So, But Ireland, as I mentioned earlier, was effectively ruled as a British client state mm -hmm. with only Anglo-Saxon Anglicans holding power. And this was called the Protestant Ascendancy. Wow. So they're like, okay... All these British people are going to come to your island and rule over you mm -hmm. and also not be a part of your religion. Oh, my God. Religious yeah. persecution, man. Yeah. And many oh. of these uh, Anglo-Saxon landowners, they didn't even live in Ireland. They still lived in England. They had their golf courses So, there. like, absentee landlords, basically. They had their golf courses there. Yeah. Uh, but some of them actually did live in Ireland. Not on Sundays, though. <laughs> yeah. Uh, some of them actually did live there. Um, Jeez. Because they may have like, like larger estates in Ireland than they did in England, so they're like, oh, I might as well just live there. There's, there's more empty land, yeah. definitely, in uh, Ireland. By the late 18th century, these English transplants began to see themselves as Irish. Okay. So they but, just adopted the... S sort of. Okay. It's not like they're adopting, like, Gaelic, Irish, Catholic culture. Mm-hmm. But they are kind of just like, well, we are the ones in charge, so we are Irish. Oh, okay. Yeah. So don't. So, so they're not like going native. Yeah. If that makes sense. Yeah. No. No. It, it's like people who have moved to Hawaii in the last century and a half, and they're yeah. like, oh, we're Hawaiian. Like, yeah, but no, yeah. no, 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 Bob. Your your parents are from San Diego. They're from Milwaukee. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like you're not you're not Hawaiian. Sorry. Yeah, no, no, you are not a no. So, um, but these elites began pushing for greater self-determination for Ireland. Okay. like, well, we're in charge, and we don't want to be really be beholden to too many people, so. Oh, this is hilarious. Yeah. So, let, we're going to take your country from you, and also you're not allowed to practice your religion, 
but we've lived here long enough. You know what? We're Irish. <laughs> and we're going to take your uh we're going to take your land. A- and then also we but we want to be free to rule on our own terms. Yeah. D- forget about the minority that we're subjugating. The um, majority they're subjugating. Well, yeah. Forget about the majority of the people in this country that we're subjugating. We're rich and white. We're Anglican. Now we want to rule ourselves. Yes. Okay. Along with all these, you know, lowly Catholics. Uh, yeah, white people. S- several acts were passed in the Irish and British parliaments to this effect, collectively called the Constitution of 1782. Okay. So they are getting more, like, some greater degree of self-determination. Uh, and the British acquiesced to this because 1782, what just happened across the pond? Yeah, they they're spread too thin. They can't. Well, they they, can't know, do they, it. they just lost the co- they just lost the colonies. Right, exactly. So it's like they also don't want a American style revolution to happen in Ireland. Uh, so, even though they probably would have won at that point, they don't want Benjamin O. Franklin. But, oh boy! All right, John McAdams. You know, Mick is, is, I think the Mick is oh, yeah, Irish Scott. and, Mick is, Matt, well, Mac is Scottish and I think O is Irish, right? Yeah. Okay. I don't know, man. I'm, I'm like really, really, really English, so can't tell you. <laughs> yeah. And then I walked in today, you were saying God save the queen. So. Yes, exactly. If it's, I um, know, I don't, I don't even know God save the queen. I know the Canadian anthem, but I don't know God save the queen. I don't know the words offhand, which eh. Queen did a cover of it and put them on their album, so I should know it. But. Good job. Yeah. Um, relaxation of trade restrictions led to an economic boom in Ireland in the 1780s. Hmm. Uh, Catholic restrictions were were eased, but they could they still couldn't hold office or senior positions in government. But you know. It's not as bad as it was. <laughs> so they're so. like, well. Do you want it to go back to the way it was, or do you, or are you uh, satisfied with the progression that we've made so far? Uh, part of the reason for some degree of conciliation with Catholics was the French Revolution, uh, the leaders of which were firmly anti-clerical, at least in the early days. Viva like, la like, Revolution! Like the very radical um, Jacobins, like uh, Robespierre or Danton, uh, Sandrus. So you have these people who are like very very anti-Catholic, very anti-organized traditional religion. Mm. So the British were like, you know, if we make some conciliations towards these Catholics, they will be um, more likely to maybe like serve in any impending conflict against France. Because they're like, oh, they're against all of us. Yeah. So, type of thing. So We need to do an episode on the French Revolution. No, we do not. Why not? It, that, you want to talk complicated. <laughs> I like complicated. As the researcher, I don't. Oh. <laughs> so, uh, maybe we'll talk about some aspect. There's no way we'd ever talk about it as a whole. There's no possible way for us to do that. There's probably a few F-ups in there somewhere. I just haven't really looked into it because, like I said, that is a that is a beast. So... Okay. Uh, maybe someday. Um, but however, uh, the reforms did not go far enough for many in Ireland. You know, understandably so. Sure. Yeah. Uh, in 1791, the Society of United Irishmen was formed and soon became radicalized. 
calling for complete independence from Britain and the formation of an Irish Republic. Uh-oh. Uh, the movement attracted both Catholics and Presbyterians. Because remember, Presbyterians are also restricted to some degree. Right, but they're but they're still like they consider themselves to be ethnically Irish. Yeah, they're they're kind of, they're considering themselves like, hey, we're here, so we should have a say in yeah, what like goes on. like we want an Irish Republic run by Irish people. Yes. Okay, so they're well, I guess you can't even say ethnically Irish because like whatever, but um, I, I don't know, is that accurate to say ethnically Irish? Oh, you could. Okay. I mean, but the, so the population of people who have actually lived in Ireland want to have an Irish Republic that they themselves rule outside of this Anglican crap that's happening. Yes. Okay. All right. Uh, United Irishmen was banned in 1793 after war began with France, as it was feared that the group would assist France. Of course. Yes, of course. Uh, however, this only served to reinforce the United Irishmen's resolve. That's the um, one thing that you can't do against Irish people is tell them not to do a thing. Yep. Uh, their leader, who might have one of the best historical names ever, Wolf Tone. Wolf Tone? Wolf Tone. Is it W-O or W-U? W-O-L-F-E. Tone, T-O-N-E? Yep. Dang. Wolf Tone is their leader. Dope uh, name. He solicited French support, which would be granted eventually. Uh, the French uh, revolutionary government... Uh, I don't know if that's actually the revolutionary government in seventeen. The French Revolutionary government went through so many forms in the 1790s, it can be hard to keep track. Mm -hmm. But whoever was in charge of France at the time <laughs> sent a fleet of over 40 warships and 15,000 men in an invasion of Ireland in December 1796. Holy crap. Okay. The, the invasion attempt failed to even land in Ireland due to storms and incompetence and was called off. <laughs> storms wow. and incompetence. The... So, the twin roadblocks to every naval invasion, storms and incompetence. There that sounds kind of hilarious, though. Like, yeah. them leaving France super gung-ho. They're like, we're taking warships. We're about to go invade. And then they're like, oh, the the sea is very... Uh, very choppy. It's very angry. Let, let's go home. Yeah. Uh, the Irish government, now having proof of cooperation between France and the United Irishmen, began to uh -oh. crack down. Uh-oh. They're, they're like, now we know. We know y'all are in yeah. cahoots. This led to further violence. And in May 1798, the United Irishmen launched, launched a full-scale rebellion. Uh-oh. The rebellion was poorly planned, and intelligence leaks led to early British victories. No! And the rebellion would, would be put down by October 1798. So it only lasts a few months. Dude, the, you gotta listen to what Ben Franklin said. Two people can keep a secret if one of them are dead. Mm -hmm. If you're gonna have an uh, overthrow... You can't be leaking to a bunch of idiots. <laughs> yeah. So in those five months, approximately 2,000 British combatants were killed. Wow. Do you want to guess how many Irishmen? Oh, my God. Is it going to be like 6,000? 6, 60,000? No, there's not that many people who live in Ireland, I don't think. You were closer on the second one. Really? An estimated 40,000 Irish combatants and civilians lost their lives. No. Oh, my God. <laughs> Oh, uh, just because they couldn't keep their mouths shut. Well, not just because. Yeah. I'm sure, I mean, the British are literally more organized and yeah. just have more people to throw at this anyways. Uh, yeah. And yeah. the Irish people so. are like, We're, we have sheep and grass yeah. and farm implements. <laughs> uh, the leader of British forces during much of the rebellion was our effort upper for the episode, Charles Cornwallis. 
I've heard the. I've definitely heard the name Lord Cornwallis because yeah. yeah, it wasn't his name Charles Lord Cornwallis. Yes. Okay. Yeah, which I think is such a weird way to say that name, and yeah. I think that we've brought it up in a prior episode before. Our last one, probably. No, it was one like one of our earlier on ones before we moved the studio, um, because it'd be like Teresa Lord last name. This is just weird. I don't want to say my actual yeah, last name it, on the podcast. Is it, that weird? <laughs> it's like um, just use my s- married name. <laughs> some um, like like some titles that were granted like. I would have like a geographical component, so you'd mm-hmm. say like Earl of Dayton, Baron Kettering, or whatever. Yeah, no, no like I get it, like yeah. Earl, Earl but, of Sandwich. But but type some of thing. them, it's like if they weren't like landholders or massive land, like had like large estates or whatever, mm-hmm. but they had done so much to like further you know the interests of the crown or the empire or the government or what or the military or whatever. They're like, well, this guy deserves to be this. They would just say Earl Cornwallis. Yeah, I just think it's weird that in be, instead of being Lord Charles Cornwallis, he was Charles Lord Cornwallis. I mean, you, you mean you really could say it either way, but yeah, it's just strange that he specifically had Lord in the middle. Um, well, it just depends on who's referring to him, really. But um, anyway, Cornwallis. Uh, yeah, and he is going to sound familiar to a lot of well people who have an interest in American history. You may not be able to place him, but he's definitely important. No. Uh, Cornwallis, he'd been born on New Year's Eve, 1738, in London to Shocker, a well-connected noble family. No. Uh, He was commissioned into the British Army in 1757, uh, and he began his service in Parliament in 1760. Uh, He steadily rose to the ranks, uh, achieving the rank of Lieutenant General in 1776. Oh. He played a prominent role in General Howe's successful campaign to take New York City in 1776, as well as the victories at Brandywine and Germantown in 1777 during the American Revolution. Sure, yeah. General Howe, who we brought up in a previous episode. Mm -hmm. Um, If he was at all even partially skilled, then he probably had success during the American Revolution. Uh, He returned to England in 1778 to be with his dying wife, but came back to America in July 1779, following her death, and he took command of British operations in the South. Hmm. Uh, the Southern theater of the American Revolution, it definitely does not get as much play as what happened in the North, because North had Washington. Yeah, I honestly know nothing about the American Revolution in the South, uh, yeah. south of Virginia. Uh, I'm, well, I'm like, they, they didn't even... Also a lot of American defeats, <laughs> so... Also, probably reason why you don't hear about it. Um, I, as far as I'm concerned, the American Revolution only happened Virginia and North, and nowhere further south. Um, <laughs> are you are you having to bite your tongue right now? Yes. Um, Cornwallis <laughs> captured Charleston in May 1780. South Carolina. Yes. What? Yes, South no. Carolina is part of the American colonies, Teresa. <sighs> so, I know that this is probably going to. Uh, surprise so many people who listen to this podcast, but I had no idea that it was as far south as South Carolina. Like I said. As far south as Georgia. Like, Georgia was a colony. What? Georgia. Like, the state of Georgia was a colony that was rebelling at the time. Okay. (laughs) What? Anyway... (laughs) 
I'm he sorry. captured Charleston, South Carolina in May 1780 and routed a larger force at Camden in August 1780. Uh, after further clashes in the Carolinas, Cornwallis moved up into Virginia to link up with another British force. Mm-hmm. Now, this is where people will remember him from your American history class in high school. Cornwallis blundered by occupying a position near Yorktown, where he was besieged by American land and French naval forces, and surrendered in October 1781. The siege of Yorktown would be the last major engagement of the American Revolutionary War. Okay. Does that ring a bell for you? Uh, Yorktown? I've heard the, the word Yorktown. Okay. Uh, he returned to England and was appointed Viceroy of India in 1786. What? So he's basically like the head guy in charge of British holdings in India. This dude is just snapping necks and cashing checks just across the world. Yeah. He's like, oh, I'm going to go to America and be extremely successful except for in Yorktown, return in defeat to England. And they were like, you know what? You can go to India for us. Yeah. Also had no idea that the British were in India that early. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, boy. Uh, he conducted a campaign uh, against the Kingdom of Mysore in seventeen in the 1790s. What is the Kingdom of Mysore? Uh, it was uh, one of the more powerful uh, Indian kingdoms at the time. Okay. Um, bringing it further under British influence. Uh, he returned to Britain in 1794 and it was created Marquess Cornwallis. What so, so the like, So he's like one rank below Duke. Made-up ranks are hard. <laughs> it goes Emperor, King, Duke, Marquess, Earl, or Count, Viscount, Baron, and Baronet. Where's Lord? Lord is a shorthand. You can really call anybody Earl, like a, like an Earl, a Count, oh, okay. a Viscount, a Baron. You can just call them Lord, whatever. Just it just for just shorthand. So you oh. don't have to say the whole freaking title. Yeah. So it's like sir or doctor. Yeah. <laughs> it, it's like you're not saying like doctor of philosophy or whatever. You're yeah. just saying like doctor. Yeah. Um Okay. So he he got bumped up a rank. Yeah. All right. But is he still not a landholder then? No, you said he's Marquess of No, like Cornwallis is his last name. Like that is his actual last name. Okay, but Okay. So, like, he probably has some, but he's not, like, attached to a geographical area. Okay. So, he's not, no. like, the Earl of Sandwich. He's no. just a Marquess now. Yeah. Okay. No. Bumped up. Yeah. Uh, he up. served as Master of the Ordnance until 1798, and basically that's just the guy in charge of ordnance for the army. What's ordnance? Like your ammo. Oh, okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Okay. So, Got it. Um... Until 1798, when he was appointed Lord Lieutenant of Ireland. Dang. And that is basically the king's representative in Ireland. Like, he's the guy governing Ireland in the name of the king. Okay. So, like, the equivalent would be, like, today, like, in Canada. Canada has what's called a governor general. Okay. That is essentially Queen Elizabeth's representative in Canada. They act as the monarch, essentially, because she is not there. Is it generally... Like a, just like a figurehead? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's basically a substitute queen. Which does nothing. <laughs> yeah, usually it's just given to someone who is like, for like, kind of like a, like who's like, like a lifetime of service to the country. So it's like an ambassadorship. Kind of. Uh, okay. kind, yes and uh, no. Less work? <laughs> uh, yeah, less work. Okay. <laughs> so, but like, so- but like, like they give like a, 
similar to like how we have a president who signs bills into law, uh-huh. acts of parliament still have to have what's called royal assent. Oh, okay. Which, I mean, it's just such a rubber stamp at this point. Like, so I don't, he- like, the queen just essentially just gives it to everything that passes. Okay. Like, for, like, an act in Canada that it passes the Canadian parliament, mm-hmm. the governor general gives royal assent. I see. In, in place of the queen. Because it would take way too long to mail all that stuff to England. Yeah, I mean... But at this point in time, talking about Lord Cornwallis, was it still such a figurehead situation? No, no, no. no. Okay, like, so like, the monarch was... still had... Still exerted like much like greater influence. So this is like um, a legit position yes. at this point. Yes. Like he is actively doing stuff. Yes. Okay. And he's also commander in chief of British military forces in Ireland. Of course he is. So. So that's Cornwallis, um, and he, along with many others, um, during this rebellion and afterwards, he began to see complete political union with Great Britain as the only option forward. So remember, as I said, like up at this point, it's been like a client state, a puppet state, you know, technically independent, but but it's not it's not like a part of the United Kingdom. Okay. It is not a part of the country. All right. So, um, actually, going to show you. There's Cornwallis, fat and sassy, generic British army dude. He's got the hair. He's got the Washington hair. Powdered wig. Yep. But with Uh, red coat. Yep. Uh, several factors motivated full political union between Ireland and Britain. Um, support for the restoration of political rights for Catholics uh, had been building in both Ireland and Britain. Uh, and the Protestant ascendancy in Ireland feared that a Catholic-dominated Irish parliament would result in their own loss of power, uh, disenfranchisement, and possibly the independence of Ireland in an alliance with France. Of course. So... The British Parliament pushed for union because it would give them greater control. Because the British Parliament, they could appoint every executive officer, like everyone carrying out the laws, mm-hmm. and even if like you had Irish members of Parliament or Irish lords like in like the British Parliament, they're always going to be outnumbered right. by the British ones because Britain has like a far higher population. Of course, yeah. So like even if you like if you have like you know. 50 Irish MPs and you have 200 British MPs. Right. Even if all 50 Irish MPs vote against a bill that they don't want, the remaining like 200 British MPs are like, oh, well, we voted for it. Easily, so. right. Yeah. So so they, they're not getting their fair shake. They're not getting fair representation. Right. Okay. So that, that's why the British Parliament be like, oh, yeah, yeah, let's do this. Mm-hmm. Of uh, course. Cornwallis began pushing the Irish Parliament to accept union assisted by his number two, Robert Stewart. Now, history knows him by a different name. I'll get to that. Uh, Stewart had been born in July 1769 in Dublin. Uh, he was the son of a prominent Scottish Presbyterian family. So he's not like native, native Irish. He was he's, just he's born, born there. there, but his family is Scottish. But to Scottish Presbyterians, yeah. okay. Uh, he served in the Irish Parliament from 1791 onwards and in the British Parliament from 1794 onwards. Yes, he was in both. Okay. Uh, he began service to his uncle, Lord Camden, uh, the previous Lord Lieutenant of Ireland prior to Cornwallis in 1795. And upon the further ennoblement of his father in 1796, Stuart began to be called by the name that history knows him by, Lord Castlereagh. <laughs> yeah. Why did he pick that name? Do we know? Well, I'm going to uh, a little side note here. 
I have to explain courtesy titles to you. Okay. So, typically, a lot of times when you're appointed or created into a, like, a higher position of ability, usually like an earl or higher, mm-hmm. you're not given just one title, you're given multiple titles mm-hmm. of, like, of, like, a lower rank. Okay. So, like, for example, um, Prince William. I was going to say. When he was made Duke of Cambridge, mm-hmm. he was also created Earl of... Blah, blah, blah. <laughs> Earl of blah, 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 and Baron Yuckety Muck. <laughs> okay. There's probably a place in England called Yuckety Muck. Um, okay. So, like, he wouldn't use those titles. Like, like he's always going to be Duke of Cambridge, because that's the highest ranking one. So, since he's not using those little subsidiary titles, his heir can use it. Okay. Weird. So, yeah, so... It's like, let, let's say, for example, let's say my dad is British. <laughs> I, I, I'm i sorry. I just looked at Prince Williams. So he's Duke of Cambridge, Earl of Strathern, and Baron Carrick Fergus. <laughs> <laughs> That's why I laughed out loud. Oh, goodness gracious. So those are... Yeah. Uh, yeah. So Earl and Strathern is in Scotland. So yeah. Carrick Fergus is in Ireland. Yeah. So yeah. does that help your explanation? Eh, kind of. Yeah. Okay. So, 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 like, if he wanted to, like, his son Prince George, or if they wanted him to, he could be called, like, Prince George, Earl of Strathern. Okay. Or whatever it was. If, if, if they decided, like, he should use the courtesy title, which I don't think he does, but whatever. Okay. So, like, a lot of, like, you have a lot of sons of British noble people mm-hmm. just who just do that. They're just like, give me that. <laughs> yeah, you're not using that. So uh, yeah, and also it's like even if like you know, like the son of their heir, they could use like the like there's a third one you could use that last like like if the if your top dude's a duke, his son is a he'll use the earl title, and his grandson will use the baron title. So does Charles have titles that potentially William could use? Like Prince Charles, he he's, well, is Prince Charles Duke of Edinburgh? He is Duke of Cornwall, Duke of Rothsay, and technically, since Prince Philip died, he's also Duke of Edinburgh. Okay, so theoretically, he could pass one of those titles down well, to well, Prince mm, that depends. Oh, okay. If Charles predeceased Queen Elizabeth, uh huh. You got the fact he's in his 70s is, you know, possibility yeah. always. Prince William would inherit all of the ti- all of those titles, uh-huh. including Prince of Wales. Uh-huh. Um, oh, yeah, I forgot he's Prince of Wales. Too. So he could be... All the things. Yeah. And then he'd just have eight titles. If Charles... If Queen Elizabeth dies first and Charles becomes king, all of his titles become what's called merged into the crown. Okay. So essentially the way the British honor system works, or the British peerage system, the crown is what is called the font of honor. (laughs) So you can think of it as the crown has all titles, and basically when they create a title, Uh they are taking that title from themselves and giving it to someone else. Okay, so in this particular case, if Charles ascended to the throne, then all of his titles would just be eaten up by the crown. Yes, and then he could redistribute them as he wanted to. So he would be His Royal yeah. Highness, King Charles, or whatever name he picks. Yeah. And that would be it. Yeah. He so, would not be like... Yeah. Like, like okay. 
likely Prince William would be then be created Prince of Wales, Duke of Rothsay, Duke sure. of because Cornwall. it's re- it's basically redundant. It's like yeah. well, you're already the highest you could possibly be in royal in the royal yeah. you know family. So why say all yeah. of these other things? Yeah, we yeah, just need to say king. That's highest. That's the highest it could possibly be. The only, the only exception is like Duke of Lancaster and Duke of Normandy, but they're special. So Okay. So um, it, during this particular time, though, for Lord Cornwallis and uh, Lord Castlereagh, yeah. do these titles actually have meaning to what they're doing in Ireland? Not really. Um, well, like... That's the most uh, frustrating well, part. Well, because me. his... Like, like Lord, in Lord Castlereagh's instance, like his, when his father was made... Earl, I think it's like Earl of Londonderry. <laughs> okay. The subsidiary title is Viscount Castlereagh. So subsidiary? while his father is still alive, Robert Stewart is using the courtesy title Viscount Castlereagh, but he just goes by Lord because you can just, just for quick reference, Lord Castlereagh. Right, right. So that's what he's known by to history because that's when he does most of his work. So. Man, that's so. So confusing. That's why I just had to take a drink of water because that has a lot of talking. <laughs> so uh, anyway, okay. Back to our story at hand. All right. That you may have forgotten out about with all that explanation of British titles. <laughs> uh, Lord Castlereagh. He was appointed Chief Secretary of Ireland in March 1798. Basically, he ran the day-to-day operations. Like he's the administrator, and Cornwallis is kind of like the guy in charge. He's the military guy. So, okay. So again, both of these, both Cornwallis and Castlereagh, they're pushing the Irish Parliament to accept union. They want this to happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Protestant ascendancy, like one of those Anglo-Saxon, Anglican people who just came over to Ireland, or like the big powers, right? They had to be kind of cajoled into voting for union. Like, like they were leaning towards that direction, but they kind of had to be pushed in that direction. Okay, because. They thought like the, a united parliament would push for Catholic emancip- emancipation, and they would kind of lose some of their power. Okay. So, and this is where I say that Cornwallis f's up because he, Cornwallis and Stuart they decide to use their positions to promise government jobs and peerages, more no. so like more titles, as well as flat out bribery to gain the support of Protestant power brokers. What is that called when people, when you give somebody you know a job? Uh, nepotism. Yeah. So basically, they were trying to be nepotists in this sort of. Yeah, case. like like they're saying, um, "Hey, you know, okay, we're going to lose power here." Cornwallis is like, "Okay, in compensation for the loss of power, we'll cre- we'll create you like Earl of Earl of uh, you know Pumpernickel Bay or something like that <laughs> over in England." Pumpernickel Bay. Yeah. All right. I would like to go there. Let's go to Pumpernickel Bay. Yeah. Book a flight. So, so it's just kind of way like, hey, that way you won't actually lose any power. Like, you know, you'll still have all your land holdings and stuff. Or, you know, we'll, we'll give your son this government job. Um, or we'll just pay you to vote this way. Um, oh. Yeah. Cornwallis, so uh, Cornwallis, in a quote, or in a letter, uh, said, quote, My occupation is now of the most unpleasant nature. Negotiating and jobbing with the most corrupt people under heaven, I despise and hate myself every hour for engaging in such dirty work, and am supported only by the reflection that without a union, the British Empire must be dissolved. End quote. Okay. Just a little much. Yeah, very dramatic. Yeah. 
So like he even he's he finds it distasteful, but he's kind of like holding his nose and doing it anyway. Mm-hmm. So, well, he he's all in. Yeah. Uh, here's a picture. I forgot to show you a picture of Castle Ray. Hmm. Interesting. A little different than your typical. Yeah. Old white guy during that time. He's not well, wearing no, that, the powdered that, wig. That image was a little later uh, during the 1810s. Oh, okay. But, so. so the the powdered wig was out of fashion. Yes. Okay. Yeah. I see. Uh, to bring Irish Catholics on board, uh, Cornwallis and Castlereagh promised emancipation. Okay. Yeah, mm. you probably shouldn't be promising stuff that you can't. You, they're writing checks that they're <laughs> that the uh, king ain't gonna cash. Yeah. On July second, eighteen hundred, King George the Third gave royal assent to the Union Bill from the British Parliament, followed by Cornwallis as. Of governor. Course. Yeah, no, Lieutenant, Lieutenant Governor. Giving royal assent to the Union Bill from the Irish Parliament on August 1st. And on January 1st, 1801, Ireland and Great Britain merged to form the United Kingdom of Great Britain and oh. Ireland. Oh, boy. And that's, oh where boy. You, that's where you get the modern-day Union Jack from. Oh, okay. I didn't so, like, know you that. see, like, a little history of, like, here's the English flag and the Scottish flag. When they joined, that's what it looked like. Uh-huh. And then the Irish flag, and then... That is Jack. hilarious. Okay. Yep. Well, I I had no idea. Yep. It seems very obvious to me now um, in looking at those flags that it's clearly a combination of all of them, yeah. but yes. And then Wales, sorry. <laughs> well, they have a dragon, right? Uh, Yeah. Yeah. Well, that, they're like, how do we put the dragon in here? <laughs> Just put it in one of the corners. Uh, Well, I think they, um, they're probably, I think they're like pretty settled in the flag now. Yeah. Perhaps you should write a letter to the Queen, Cody, and see what she says. Yeah. All right, I'll do it. <laughs> Dear um, Queen Elizabeth II. Which makes, you, which makes you wonder if, like, if Northern Ireland did ever leave and vote to reunify with Ireland, would they take the Irish part of it out of it? Ooh, that's a good question. Or if Scotland, like, if Scotland it was ever independent again, it's like, how, like, how would that... Yeah. Oh my god. Can you imagine? I know that you you talked about a I think a YouTube video that you watched or something that you watched about what's going to happen when Queen Elizabeth II dies in England. Oh lord, yeah, there's a whole process. Right, and it's going to cost like several billion dollars, right? Yeah, cuz I have to reprint all the freaking money. Right. And do let redo like a whole bunch of crap. Yeah. Well, imagine if Scottish independence was won and they they had to remove that from their flag. I wonder how much money that would cost. That'd be a Lord. good YouTube video to find. Yeah. That... How much would Scottish independence cost Scotland and England? I mean, look how much like chaos and money just leaving the EU has cost the UK. Right. How much would it cost if one of their own like a part of their own country just left? <laughs> exactly. So, but anyway, um, under the terms of the Act of Union, of course, we get the Union Jack. Uh, the Irish army was absorbed into the British army. Of course. The Anglican Church of Ireland was merged with the Church of England, which, remember, was not done for Scotland. Like, yeah. Scotland's, like, its church was, ma like, maintained its independence. Yeah, what the heck? So. Okay. And Irish parliamentarians were moved into the British Parliament. 100 Irish MPs sat in the House of Commons compared to 558 British MPs. So they are overwhelmingly outnumbered. They will always be outvoted on legislation. <sighs> that doesn't 20, seem fair. 28 Irish lords sat in the House of Lords compared to 200 British lords. Oh my goodness. So they're outnumbered there as well. 
So there is legitimately no, like they're independent and they can vote however they want, but they're always going to be swallowed by England. Yeah, if, if like the English and Scottish MPs want something done for Ireland, there is no way for the Irish MPs to do anything besides voting no. At the, at this point in time, yeah. okay. Yeah. So uh, the cat. Sorry, good. No, I have, I just have another question. Um, so there there's no at this point in time there is no way for the Irish to be like this is an Irish issue. We only want Ireland to vote on it. Correct. Okay, continue. Uh, the Catholic emancipation. Uh, the emancipation. <laughs> oh Lord, I'm that's, that's foreshadowing. Uh, the Catholic emancipation promised by Cornwallis and Stuart met or Castlereagh. See, I go, I get him. Yeah, it's dumb. Titles are dumb. Met <laughs> opposition. are hard. Met opposition from King George III, who refused to accept the measure, citing his coronation oath. Oh boy. Yeah, King George III would not give royal assent to it because I somewhere in the in the coronation oath, the pledges to protect the Church of England. And so he saw as granting Catholic emancipation. Uh, I did again. Jesus. Catho potato <sighs> Catholic emancipation as like, in, like incompatible with that. <laughs> okay. So he just refused to do it. So, so basically they, they made tons of promises and negotiations on something that there was no possible way this was yep. going to work. Uh, the refusal of the king to give royal assent to a Catholic emancipation bill, I did it, led to the, court, led to the resignation of the Prime Minister William Pitt in January 1801, followed by Cornwallis himself in May 1801. The Prime Minister of Ireland? No, well, Prime Minister of the UK. Like, oh. they're one country now. <laughs> He was like, "This I'm never going to uh, politically yeah. recover from this." Holy uh, well, well, he would come back eventually. Um, <sighs> man, man, they're more, a lot more forgiving on their PMs, I think, than we are here in the states. Because Winston yes, Churchill, because, uh, basically, yes, all of the American prime ministers. Yes. Oh, shut up! <laughs> you know what I meant. Uh, it's basically like they they'll uh, resign in disgrace, and then later they'll be like. Just kidding, I'm back. And they're like, okay, it yeah. It happens less often now. The last British Prime Minister to... Well, he didn't resign in disgrace. He just lost an election. But the last British Prime Minister to serve, like, non-consecutive terms was in the 1970s, I think. Do they have... Well, what's the term limit for a Prime Minister? There isn't one. Oh. Well, they can be I... Prime Minister for theoretically as long as they can... How long is the term? Uh, also depends. So they don't have like four-year terms? No. Oh, shit. It depends on however long the parliament is. Oh, man, because, I didn't because know Because like, they tried to make it like just, okay, we're going to have an election every five years in uh -huh. the 2010s. Uh-huh. And that seemed to work okay. Like, you have election 2010. Institute the Fixed Term Parliaments Act. Okay, we're going to have election 2015. Uh-huh. Once Brexit happened, that kind of became harder to do because there was just such deadlock. Ah, uh, okay. So, like, the, there was a provision in it where it's like, okay, if two-thirds of the parliament agrees, we can dissolve parliament hold an election. And they did that twice. Okay. And that's why I have 2017, had 2019 election, until now they just repealed it. It's like, okay, this wasn't, this didn't work. Okay. It seemed like a good idea. It just didn't work. Uh-huh. So, like, by law... 
they still have to have an election every five years, like no more than every five years. Uh huh. Or, or like there can't be more than five years between elections. Okay. But they can you they, you, you can have one like a few months after like like in, I think it was like nineteen seventy four there were two elections in the same year. Oh wow. Okay. Where it's like what's going on in Israel or has been going on in Israel for like the last like five years where it's like they have a new election every like nine months because they're just so deadlocked. Right. So okay. Okay. I was just wondering. Yeah. I just wondered if they had recurrence more than we do. Oh, where yeah, they like yeah. reelect yeah, the same like, PM. Like I said, it's it's not as common nowadays. Uh huh. But it was definitely common like uh, back back in like the nineteenth prior to the nineteenth prior to twentieth century, like the twentieth huh. century. So okay, like like Churchill. Yeah, that's Churchill what, had two different terms. That's what I was thinking about was uh, Churchill. Yeah, like nineteen forty to forty five, and then again nineteen fifty one to fifty. Four, I think. Because in general, nine. like they, they, the the British were not satisfied with how Churchill was handling World War Two, right? No, they were. They just felt that now that peace has largely been achieved, we need a different type of leader. Ah, uh, okay. Type of thing. So. And then later, they were like, you know what? Later You're old. Came back. Come yeah. back. Yeah. Come back. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, uh, William Pitt, the Prime Minister, resigns January eighteen oh one. Uh, followed by Cornwallis in May 1801 uh, over the Catholic emancipation issue. Oh, boy. Uh, Cornwallis would go on to negotiate the Treaty of Amiens with France in 1802. Uh, during, like, the many wars during that time <laughs> with France. Like, the like the French Revolutionary and the Napoleonic Wars, they last for 26 years. Oh, my god! But they stop and start so many times. right. So you and they're just called like the war, of the first coalition, or the second coalition, or the third coalition, all the way up to seventh. Oh boy! Yeah, because you have different groups of countries fighting each other. So, jeez. Uh, so this was the the peace treaties ending one of those wars. Uh, but um, and then he returned to India as viceroy, dying there in July eighteen oh five. Okay. So he didn't really live too much longer. Right. He was like. You know what? I failed in Ireland. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I I failed in I failed in the US and came home. And then I did not well, accomplished part of what I wanted in Ireland, but also not all of it. So I'm going to go to India. Yeah. And die there. <laughs> yeah. Um Castlereagh, he also resigned his post over Catholic emancipation, but he would uh remain in government for the rest of his life, uh serving in various cabinet posts. He's got that sweet, sweet uh, built-in British yeah. uh, staying power. Yes. Uh, while Secretary for War, he fought a duel with the Foreign Secretary in 1809, wounding him in the leg. So it would be like if the Secretary of Defense got in a duel with the Secretary of State. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So I wonder just, what he said. I, I, Did he I, insult I, his I, wife? I don't remember because it's not important. I just thought that was just a weird thing to note. Um uh, <laughs> Castlereagh, he served as foreign secretary during the Congress of Vienna in 1815, which restructured Europe after over 25 years of constant warfare. Holy crap. This is where, like, basically, like, okay, all the great powers get together and be like, okay, France, okay, no, you're going back to your 1789 borders. You're not, you don't, you don't get to keep all the stuff you took. Uh, Holy Roman Empire, you're not a thing anymore. Uh, Prussia, you get some land. Saxony, you get some land. Austria, you get some land. So they were Russia, 
just stay over there. You can keep Poland. Just stay over there. So they were Oprah-ing it. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, it, it, it just kind of restructured Europe. And it was a piece that kind of... You had general peace on the continent for 99 years. So it was relatively effective. Oh, okay. Um, uh, he also pushed for the abolition of the slave trade at the Congress of Vienna. So Interesting, okay. Um, but he was widely unpopular in Ireland for the failure to deliver on Catholic emancipation. And by this time, they're starting to realize, oh, we don't have really that big of a say in Parliament. Hmm. <laughs> And But he was also very unpopular in Britain because he had supported some authoritarian measures. Um, he was involved in the government response that led to what was called the Peterloo Massacre. Basically, a bunch of like protesters wanting reform were just kind of massacred by the British army. Pressure just continued to mount on him, uh, which led to a depressive spiral. Um, his father died... Um, and that really affected him. Uh, and it all culminated with his suicide in August 1822. Oh my goodness. Like, like the sitting foreign secretary killed himself. He oh. took a razor and slit his own throat. Oh my god. This yeah. guy really dark. Yeah. Lord <laughs> yeah. have mercy. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. He, yep. Um, executive power in Ireland, along with the rest of the UK, uh, continued its movement away from the monarch and more towards parliament. In the early 19th century. Mm -hmm. uh, this is where you kind of see like a large scale, like more of that just continuing. Yeah. Um, George III, after 1800, had intermittent bouts of insanity. Um, what? <laughs> oh, yeah. George III, like, he said he lost the colonies and he lost his mind. Oh, um, boy. It is a lot of stress. Yeah. Um, and he also been king for like 60 years. So, I mean, he started having bouts of insanity. Uh in 1810, I think it was 1810 or 1811, um, his son, Prince George, just uh, was named a regent because his father just couldn't do it anymore. Mm -hmm. um, George III, he died in 1820, succeeded by George, his son, Prince George, who was George IV, um, who was very incompetent. Oh, no. Like, definitely a monarch who was more concerned with the pleasures of the role than the actual funk, like, doing the job. Of course. So he was, like, a throwback king. Yeah. Yeah, he was, and... <laughs> he wasn't like, functional. He wasn't functional, like, physically. Like, he was very fat. Oh, no. Um, like, definitely, definitely gout-ridden. Oh, no. <laughs> definitely rich fat man's disease. Um, Jeez. so he was very ineffective. As I mentioned, George III had been insane for a good chunk. Also wow. ineffective. William IV kind of effective uh the loss of the last i think the last british monarch to just flat out fire a prime minister but like especially under victoria you see like this erosion of the monarch's authority mm -hmm. you see the parliament just kind of take it so so you just see this executive power going more towards parliament so the people actually running ireland the executives in ireland are parliament's men so. wow uh, Catholic emancipation would come in 1829 across the whole of the UK. Uh, but executive power in Ireland was still largely exercised by the Protestant ascendancy. Because remember, they got appointed all those government jobs. Right. They're still the people who are actually running Ireland. Wow. 
So they're like, you can be so. free, but we're not going to persecute you anymore, you know, 40 years later, almost 50 years later, yeah. but you still don't get the power to rule over your own land. Right. We're just not going to persecute you individually. Right. We're just, we'll still persecute you as a country. You are still going to be the underclass. Yeah. But at least you can have your bishops come back. Yep. Isn't that great? Yeah. And that's uh, and that's all across the UK. So, like, wow. Catholics across the UK, they can worship as they please. It so. makes sense now why there aren't more British Catholics. Yeah. I mean, there, I mean, there's still, I mean, there's a sizable chunk of them. But, like, you know, like Catholicism. Because it was going outlawed. All, going all the way back to Henry VIII. You have, like, varying levels of, like, waxing and waning of Catholicism. Wow. Like, like definitely waning under Edward VI, coming back full force under Mary I, waning in under Elizabeth I. Uh, then you have the Stuart monarchs, like James I, um, uh, Charles I, greatly influenced by his very Catholic wife, mm -hmm. which partially kind of led to the English Civil War somewhat. Sure. Charles II, James II, again, very influenced by his Catholic wife. Never was underestimate was, the power was of a wife. overthrown. Um, by his wife, right? No. Oh. Who's the one who was... Edward II. Okay. Never underestimate the power of a wife. Yeah. Um, okay. And definitely under William & Mary, it's, it's really starting to... It really gets restricted. Like, like uh, 1691... That would be William the Third of like William and Mary, mm -hmm. um, when that first Irish rebellion from like comes into play. Like the penal laws mm -hmm. are really starting are, are passed like under William and Mary under Queen Anne. Um, so that's when it really starts getting. Uh, that's when it's, the power of Catholics in Ireland really wanes, and then comes back when they get emancipated in eighteen twenty nine. So it, right. it, it, it's like a. Up and down, up and down. It's a line graph. Yeah. Okay. So um, I'm gonna I'll leave, I will leave it there because in a few episodes time we will come back to Ireland. All right. And we will uh, we will um, talk about uh, the most infamous of British f ups in Ireland, the potato famine. Oh boy. That's what all of this stuff about Ireland has been leading to. You needed, like, all of this you can see is more background okay. for that. Okay. So you need to know how we got there. So, uh, sources used for this episode uh, John Bue's Castle Ray, A Life from 2011, Marion Elliott, Partners in Revolution, The United Irishmen in France from 1982, Patrick. Gilgan's uh, The Irish Act of Union, 1798 to 1801, from 1999. Paul Johnson's Ireland, Lane of Troubles, A History from the 12th Century to the Present Day, from 1982. Kevin Whelan's The Tree of Liberty, Radicals, Catholicism, and the Construction of Irish Identity, 1760 to 1830, from 1996. And Franklin and Mary Wickwire's Cornwallis, The Imperial Years, from 1980. So, our next episode, episode 24... Or, given the subject matter, episode XXIV. Oh my gosh. We're going back to Rome, huh? Romans. Oh boy. Yes. Yes, what, more what Romans. We, what are we talking about in Rome? Uh, probably the most underrated. Uh, maybe not underrated. 
No, roll least, with it. Like, least well-known, but most successful Roman Emperor. Aurelian. Uh, and it's going to be something uh, kind of unique. Does it have with any... Our, with our effer-upper. And, it... how, and how he Fs up. Does it have anything to do with Marcus Aurelius? No. Oh. Marcus Aurelius was about, oh, 90 years before Aurelian. Oh, okay. I just thought the name sounded similar. Uh, I mean, they are. But, okay. Um, but yeah, but Aurelian himself is not an effer As you will learn, definitely not an effer-upper. Like, he, he... He would definitely subscribe to the... Uh, and Steve will appreciate this. He will subscribe to the Elvis Presley... Uh, 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 mantra of taking care of business. <laughs> do you know what? Uh, do you know when his birthday is? When Aurelian's birthday is? No, but I know that yours is September fourteenth. His birthday is September the ninth, which makes him a Virgo, and that makes me not care one bit. <laughs> Just saying, Virgos take care of business. <laughs> Do they? <laughs> yes. Do they? Yep. That's true. Hmm. Yes, and, and then they also uh, they also insert any attribute here. <laughs> for the next few weeks leading up to our one year anniversary, we'll be running a poll on our Twitter account for you, the listeners, to have your say about who the biggest effort upper was from our first year. How it works is like this. We've randomly seated our 26 effer-uppers into a tournament-style single elimination bracket. Cody and I will discuss each matchup and decide who we want to win the matchup. This is where you come in. Before the polls close on October 25th, just comment on our Twitter account with your top three effer-uppers. They don't have to be ranked or anything like that. Just name three that you liked or were entertained by or that you think had the biggest impact. Cody and I will take those votes, add them to our own, and determine the winner of each matchup. If we disagree on a winner and there's a tie, we'll coin flip to determine the outcome. So get your votes in by October the 25th so we can be included in the tally, which you'll hear on a special episode on November 2nd. We'll give a shout out to everyone who voted, so be sure to comment with your eye-for-uppers. Please be sure to check out our other projects, The Drunken Pawn, where we play board games and drink on YouTube, uh, Attack of the Final Girls, my sister podcast project with my lovely pod wife, Juliet, where we talk about horror movies. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at WeFedUp, no spaces. Be sure to rate and review us wherever you listen. Until next time, I'm Teresa. I'm Cody. And this is WeFedUp. We